developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. I heartily endorse this event or product. Ahoy hoy everybody and welcome to Talking Simpsons. I am one of your hosts, Bob Mackey, the Slurms McKenzie Enjoyer, and who is here with me today? I, I have fortunately not suffered from death by Snoo Snoo. It's Henry Gilbert. That's right, and yes, we have another interview for you this week, and it's somebody who never worked on The Simpsons, but we're still calling this a Talking Simpsons interview because it's our most famous show, so deal with it yeah, up front. Yeah. But you're going to enjoy this because today we're talking to Lou Morton, an amazing writer. He's written for uh, News Radio, Futurama, Veep, uh, Silicon Valley, and of course, he is a writer on the new uh, Beavis and Butthead movie, and he is the showrunner of the new Beavis and Butthead series on Paramount Plus. So mm-hmm. he basically has touched everything that we love, and we talked about him for about an hour about his entire career and some very specific Beavis and Butthead questions. Yes, yeah. So if you're enjoying the new season, and and by the way, we recorded this when only four episodes were out. He teases some future ones, but so if you guys are like, why didn't they ask about episode six? We haven't seen it yet, guys. Uh, yes, yeah, so right now it's Saturday, August twentieth. Yes, yeah, but, putting this directly in time. But he shares so many great stories about uh, Beavis and Butthead, and it, I really loved hearing his theory on how to write Beavis and Butthead. Like, what uh, what level of stupidity can you write them at? How do you make a story work with them? And and we've been loving the both do the universe and return season so much that getting answers from Lou about it was, was really amazing. We and really appreciate it. If you enjoy Lou on the interview, uh, please tweet at him. He's at Lou Morton, L E W M O R T O N. Just say, Hey, we enjoyed the interview. And I think our guests always like to hear that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, yeah, he's always, uh, right now he's more active on Twitter than, uh, than usual because he's, he's promoting the new season too. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's, uh, but I guess he mentions too, that if you sign up, if you sign up for Paramount plus with code nachos, you get uh, some free months. So. A-, a free month. A free month. We can't overpromise yes, here. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, uh, not a guarantee. Hey, yeah, it's worth nine ninety nine yeah. for, for more beefs and butthead. I agree. Uh, without further ado, here is our interview with the fantastic Lou Morton. So joining us today is Lou Morton. Welcome to the show, Lou, and thanks so much for your time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And it's uh, it's so awesome to talk to you, Lou, because you've worked on. Uh, so many shows we really, really enjoy, and now you're. Uh, well, I guess uh, are are you the uh, the head writer on on Beavs and Butthead the new season? Uh, I yeah, head writer, showrunner. Okay, that's uh, that's why I figured. I but I uh, well, so did I guess let's let's start at the beginning. Did did your uh, comedy writing career uh, did it begin at the the Harvard Lampoon? It did, yeah. I, I began at the Harvard Lampoon. What I really wanted to do is like write funny pieces for magazines. And sort of funny magazines, by the time I graduated, funny magazines kind of had gone away. Sort of the National Lampoon was a shell of its former self. And I sort of uh, ended up doing television, the next best thing. Uh, and uh, were there any, you know, uh, how, how many of your future coworkers were, were on the Lampoon with you back, back at, uh, in school? Oh, a lot. Uh, <laughs> a couple at Saturday Night Live, and and a couple at uh, at uh, at News Radio and at Futurama. There there were a few people from Lampoon on Futurama, but they only probably only one from was a classmate of mine. So early in your career, uh, you wrote for a few seasons of SNL. And we love talking to people who have been on that show because we never know who writes the sketches. It's never really called out. Can you name anything from your time there you're particularly proud of or any funny stories from that era of uh, SNL? I wrote a sketch where Patrick Stewart owns an erotic cake bakery, but the only thing thing he thinks is erotic is women going to the bathroom. <laughs> yes. I love that. Immediately when you said Patrick Stewart cake store, most of the sketch just unfurled in my mind. So, yeah. <laughs> And uh, I wrote a lot of sketches with uh, Rob Schneider that first year I was there, including uh, You Put Your Weed in There. 
semi, uh, not as uh, marginally beloved sketch from the mid nineties. Well, did you? I I saw like your first one was the the Charles Barkley Nirvana episode, which has by is uh, people just remember it uh, a lot for just the crazy picture of Nirvana standing next to Charles Barkley. Like that <laughs> seems like a crazy time to to start at SNL. It was pretty great because the first thing you do is see Nirvana live from about twenty feet away, um, and like like you know I you get to watch the the rehearsal, the dress rehearsal performance and then the live performance really from like 25 feet away, like just dodging the cameras. And that was pretty great. Uh, that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. That, yeah. I wrote with Rob this sketch where he was co-hosting a, like a QVC show where they were selling sports memorabilia, but all the sports memorabilia was like the bones of old baseball players. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I wrote a, I wrote I wrote the commercial parody of that episode too. But for the life of me, I will never remember what it was. It's long enough ago. But that, that episode, there was a sketch where it's like it was, it was Charles Barkley hosting a like a. It was Charles Barkley as the counselor at a donkey basketball camp. It was like a. Like, I guess that's something people do in the Midwest is like play basketball on donkeys for like to like as like a fundraiser. I had never heard of it. But at any rate, in, uh, there I was like my first week in show business and backstage there were stagehands literally dragging donkeys back, you know, down the hallways in, uh, in, by 8 It's showbiz. In, in the Rockefeller Center. Yeah, it very much felt like I, I was in showbiz. <laughs> uh you know a patrick stewart story also reminds me have you have you heard the john mulaney bit about patrick stewart saying salt in peppa on that episode no. it's, uh, <laughs> uh, oh well i guess we'll look it up because that uh, the the comedian john mulaney very inspired he tells a very funny joke just about patrick stewart introducing <laughs> salt and peppa on that episode that's funny you were in new york then and i guess you know a lot of lampoon guys they they either went to snl or or to letterman like did you know the letterman guys uh, uh around the same time i didn't know any letterman guys at that time i like i've since met steve young who i think was there at the time but but he's older than me i didn't i didn't really know him it was just when that was just when letterman was moving into the new theater oh okay was, uh, that's right so he wouldn't have been in 30 rock anymore yeah. with you guys yeah that's uh, uh, Conan show is just starting. SNL then goes straight into uh, Paul Sims uh, starting up news radio, right. and, and you're you were in season one from one to four, right? I was there from two to four. I wasn't there for the first six episodes. Uh, okay. I was, yeah, I was there season season two to four. One of my favorite stories I've heard from the news radio commentaries. The DVD commentaries are some of the fa my favorite DVD commentaries because you guys just tell every story. It sounds like that's. Uh, and can you find those Indian commentaries anywhere? They really are good. <laughs> they, they really oh no! Well, I mean, I bought the first set, so I just have them. I, I've heard that recent sets come without the commentaries. Oh, the that's such a unit. shame! So I'm like, what the hell? They're, yeah. they're one of the few good commentaries. I feel like there should be a gray market somewhere for uh, DVD commentaries that are out of print, just somewhere you can <laughs> yeah. listen to them. <laughs> It's an untapped market. Uh, one of my favorite things to learn about the news radio writing room was that you guys were all playing like games against each other, like Doom. You were playing Doom land parties, like you were these these gamer writers back when people were not playing video games in writers' rooms that much. I would bet. Well, news radio. Paul hired a bunch of people who had never worked in sitcoms before, so he hired he he wanted to sort of teach us his own habits and not have anyone come in with with sitcom habits. So most of us came from Variety, and so like a lot of us came from New York, and so we all moved to to Los Angeles. We didn't know anybody besides each other, and so we just spent all our free time at the office because we didn't know anybody, and so I you know I had nowhere else to go. My my first like year in Los Angeles, I spent all of my time at the news radio office. And the only place I really knew about in Los Angeles besides that was like the Beverly Center. So occasionally I would drive to the <laughs> Beverly Center, but like, that's not really, that doesn't make, 
you know, all you know is Beverly Center, Los Angeles is not that great. So like all, all you know, we, we spent all of our time there. And so we played a lot of video games there and we hung out there. We read tons and tons of magazines. We were there all night. Uh, but, uh, and, and sort of, it was sort of thought in like the comedy writing community at the time that we were being horribly exploited and made to work all night. But really, it was just because we, we had no other friends. <laughs> do you, do you wish that you had Twitch streaming back then and you guys could have just like played Doom on, or just a shooter on online? Oh no, I, we didn't want, we didn't <laughs> want to talk to people we didn't know. In any context, really. <laughs> and it sounds like, uh, I mean, a lot of your, your friends and colleagues uh, worked on The Simpsons. Was that ever a path that you tried to pursue? Uh, you went from News Radio Season 4 to Futurama. Was there ever any interest in uh, in going on The Simpsons or submitting a spec script or anything like that? No, it was pretty exciting to go on Futurama because it felt like it was a new thing. That seemed appealing to be on the ground floor of something new. And uh, for like at least a week, the, the room at... at Futurama was like Matt Groening, Dave Cohen, Ken Keeler, and me. So it was like, it was wow. fun being there, like at the very beginning. But, uh, and like, but no, I know like, like there were, there's at least a couple people who went straight from Futurama to, to The Simpsons and sort of have been there ever since, but like, uh, I, I never did. Hmm. Well, and yeah, I mean, uh, well, uh, you're, one of your old co-workers from news radio uh went to the simpsons season 13 brian kelly so yeah i was yeah. curious if you guys i was like brian kelly Stuart burns and jeff westbrook all, all three of them um <laughs> although brian brian wasn't on was never on futurama yeah he, he he went from he went from i guess just from news radio to the simpsons well, and uh you know well i have one other news radio question too just because we're we're big uh retro gaming fans as well and to hear the story on the DVD commentary, like uh, just a little bit of it, how did you guys get Eugene Jarvis on the show? <laughs> well, we wanted to do an episode where, uh, where where Dave Foley was obsessed with a video game, and it, it had ruined his life when he was a teenager. And then he's he's they get somehow this this video game appears in the office again, and it ruins his life again. So that's the story we wanted to do. So it's like what what old arcade game do we want to do we at the time were like uh because again we didn't know anyone else besides each other and we're all single and like making tv money it's so, like we would go down to like there was this uh th this auction in fullerton where they would auction off arcade games and it was mostly for people who like owned arcades or like like uh, miniature golf emporiums or whatever and, and but like we would go down there and, and like buy arcade games and uh, and uh, pinball machines at this auction, and then bring them back to the office and just we had this room in the office that wasn't really being used for anything. We just filled it with we just made it like an old fashioned arcade, and so we filled it we filled it with all these things and like uh, um, so we we settled on like. Stargate Defender as being the game, which seemed like the right amount of semi-obscure, but you've heard of it, um, uh, 80s arcade game. And then, uh, and then we just called him up. I, I like, I, I don't, I don't remember if it was me or Brian Kelly who who just called him called him up. We just found a way to contact him. We just contacted him. Do you want to be on? And like. <laughs> Then he agreed, and then it's just like, well, let's make him an extra. And we never really like asked the network or anybody. We just sort of like he arrived, and it's like, okay, put go ahead and put put your put your costume on. But uh, yeah, he ended up he ended up having like a tiny role as the delivery guy. Uh, yeah, so like at the time, I was pretty obsessed with Robotron, so I get to got to play Robotron with Eugene Jarvis before the show, and like he's pretty good at. It. He's not that great. Uh, <laughs> was there a similar amounts of gaming happening within the Futurama writing room? No, no, not really. I like had my, my, uh, I had my Robotron. I like, I owned a stand up Robotron and I, I had it in my office at, uh, at Futurama. So I play it sometimes. And like, it, like if you have any video games in an office, the production assistants get unbelievably good at them. And I think I ended up, when I left that job, I ended up like giving my Robotron to, to the writer's assistant. Oh, 
It's a nice gift. Yeah. yeah. But also, like, it is 400 pounds. <laughs> uh, you take it. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of Futurama, we want to know your experience like on the inside as the show was taking off in its first few years. Um, we know on the record there were a lot of late nights. Uh, we know uh, David Cohen uh, quit briefly because things were pretty tough and he came back to the show. It sounded like a very difficult uh, operation to get the show off the ground and then it ended up being a dislike by the network. What was it like to be on the inside of, of a production like that? Well, starting a new animated show is really hard. Um, uh, you know, you have to figure out what it is. We had to figure out like how big these science fiction stories were. And so like it's, you know, we not only had to make it funny, but we had to make this science fiction world work. And, uh, so yeah, there were like I would say any new show, any that's a comedy, there's going to be a lot of late nights because it's just difficult. That that first season is always really difficult, and so yeah, we worked, we worked a lot of hours, we worked a lot of days, uh, but I feel like we always felt like we had something. I always felt like it was going to be good, and then like yeah, when it came out, we really liked it, and like the network was not, did not care about it at all. And we were, they would basically like, we thought we were going to air like after the Simpsons. And instead we aired basically during football. Fox had, Fox had football. So the second, like we were aired at like 7 PM on Sunday. And like, so like the football game doesn't end before 7 PM on Sunday. So like we would just, we were, preempted as often as not but it's sort of it was just like being at news radio where we were promised we would be on between friends and seinfeld and then and then we were bounced around the schedule forever you yeah. must see tuesday night yeah. for briefly i mean all the futurama fans learn to hate sports even more than they already did <laughs> yeah uh, like and and like matt graney coming from the simpsons he he did not want to take notes at all because the Simpsons didn't. And, uh, you know, I guess he felt like it would be, you know, it's a real step back to go from something where you're not taking notes at all to something where they're giving you notes. And like, this was in the days that Fox just, just wanted to micromanage every single thing. It's like the, now that most TV is streaming, this doesn't happen the same way it used to. I, I don't believe at least not in anything that I've worked on in a very long time, but like, the like the network used to just note shows very very heavily whereas now there's there's a little bit more sense of we paid we paid a lot of money for the show we paid people who theoretically know how to make the show so we're just going to let them make it that was not the idea at all back hmm. then. Hmm. so we the macrating's position was like we're, we're taking no notes at all and they're like can we can we fax you some notes and you don't even have to read them <laughs> and, and, and I was like, no. And so we were immediately like at loggerheads with, with the network. Like it seemed at the time that might be why they didn't like the show. But like, I, I imagine like that the the ego between network executives and Matt Craning, that that might not have been the whole of why they, we, we were on Fox Network, uh, Fox Network Siberia, but I, I don't think it helped. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we do a, a podcast about Futurama. We dig deep into the production history. Oh, wow. And when we look at the seasons, uh, we see, wow, uh, after season two, everything is out of order. There's months of delays. I mean, we live through it, so we yeah, know. Yeah, but we now know. we can look at the details and just realize like how mistreated it was in... You never would have believed the show would be rebooted basically three times at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you are you surprised by the like just the the power of Futurama? How it just keeps coming back? No, I, I'm not. Like I'm not. It's it's a really good show, and it's like it's like it has a really specific appeal. It's like it it's really like serious about its sci-fi, and it's really serious about its comedy. And like it, if you're you're really into comedy, you're it cares about you. And if you're really into sci-fi, it cares about you it's like it's it's the kind of sci-fi where if you know a lot about science you'll always be rewarded and not punished which i feel is rarely true uh, and if you guys do you guys know this if you do a podcast about futurama but like it was a very like overeducated writing staff 
that knew a lot about science and science fiction. I remember like the, that first week I was there where like there weren't a lot of writers yet. There was a point where the whole discussion about the show got sidetracked into like the argument about whether or not Mars's moons were geosynchronous with Mars. <laughs> wow. And then it's like, no one really knew. So like they, like they're trying to derive it mathematically. <laughs> so it's like, I, I couldn't, like I was just along for ride. It's sort of like being in a really great graduate seminar that I hadn't taken the right prerequisites for. I believe there are four PhDs on that original writing staff. They, but they were all Ken Keeler. Yes. <laughs> I think he, he had them all. Were there four PhDs? There are a lot of people who dropped out of PhD programs, but like. Okay. I, I know a Bill Odenkirk, uh, Ken Keeler, oh, uh, Dave Cohen. Bill Odenkirk wasn't there in initially. Oh, yeah. He's season two. Uh, I think. But uh, Jeff Westbrook was a, a professor at UCSD, he was a computer science professor. And he took a sabbatical and spent his sabbatical writing on Futurama. And I remember there was a day <laughs> he had to go into uh, Dave Cohen's office and said, like, you have to, I'm sorry, but like, it would really help me if you can tell me whether or not you're going to pick up my option. Because I have to know uh, to tell them if I'm teaching any courses next semester. And they paid, he didn't, he never went back. He, they picked up his option. He's been at the, you know, he, you know, after that show ended, he's been at the Simpsons ever since. Which show would you say in the uh, the four seasons had a rougher time with networks in your experience? Was it news radio or, or Futurama? Well, oh, it was definitely news radio. I mean, I mean, Futurama, we had a tough time in that they didn't, they, you know, we had that, a bad time slot. And like, mm. we were never like, it was sort of like this, this moment where, or not a moment of slow dawning realization. It's like, Oh, we're never going to be as big as The Simpsons. Um, mm. the, like that's just that's just not going to happen. And it seems like Fox was Fox never gave that the chance to happen, which was kind of a bummer. But news news radio, we also got lots of notes. It's like news radio, we got we got lots and lots of notes until finally they kind of gave up on us. Like they didn't like, so they kept. It's sort of like we weren't worth the executives' time. We were because we like news radio was incredibly low rated, um, and like we constantly thought we were going to get canceled, and uh, we, were, we were always what they you know what they say on the bubble. But like uh, uh, after season two is like they kind of stopped giving notes, and like they we had more and more junior executives covering the show because I think like they just kind of. Uh, you know, we just weren't worth. We, they just didn't care. So, like, we we were so un, we were so unsuccessful that we were under their radar, which was great. Well, we love asking writers this because it makes them think about the thousands of jokes they've written over the years. But uh, we know if your name is on a script, doesn't mean you have responsibility for everything. Right. So we like to ask writers: um, Do you have a favorite joke or a favorite uh, scene that you wrote that is not that is in someone else's uh, credited episode? Someone else's script. Oh, that's a really good question. Oh shoot. Oh, news radio. There was a song. That I wrote that I think it was in somebody's episode. That I like, whereas uh, someone in the one of the extras had died, and uh, there there was a Dave Foley brings in like a counselor to help everyone through their morning about this uh, this this extra had died, and sort of the basis of the episode was in in our show really in any workplace sitcom there's all these extras crossing by who clearly work there but no one ever talks to them and like you don't know any like like it seems like they're just not friends with that guy, that guy so we had like one of the extras dies and they all feel guilty they didn't really know him uh and so uh matthew goes in and he's just written a song about this guy this guy who died and it's, it's just a song about Dungeons and dragons Right, uh, right. <laughs> I should realize you wrote that one. Well, yeah, I, I guess on uh, on the uh, Futurama episodes, uh, you, your credit writing on one of our our favorites in the in the first run was uh, Mother's Day. But that almost felt like it was like when we watched it now, we're like, oh, that that could have been a movie. Like it's all <laughs> oh, the robots just turn on everybody. Was uh, were you guys ever thinking? I mean, obviously you weren't going to just make a movie oh, then. Uh, but movies are hard, my friends. <laughs> no one wants to write a movie. They're hard. Uh, it, it, uh, 
what you want is a TV show that feels like it could have been a movie. Uh-huh. Like that's the goal. It's sort of like it's like you. It only has to be twenty minutes long and it has a lot in it, and you feel like, oh, I wanted more. That that's good. That's that's what I feel like you want. But, uh, no, Beavis and Butthead is something where like we're we're, we're trying to write a, write a, a half hour special and accidentally wrote a movie. And then we had to produce a whole movie. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, no, that one was like I, uh, in college at one point, I thought I was going to major in like government and like, and I like, in like poli sci. And I took this course where I read like almost all of Marx. It's like, I, so like I, I, so I, I used it all for the the, 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 the Marxist reading card. I was reading the Rebellion. It all checks out. Yeah, they have nothing. The, the, that robot reading card had nothing to lose but their shackles. That's true. Yeah. Another one of uh, the ones you're credit writing on is Raging Bender, which had the ultimate robot fighting league. And I noticed that and uh, news radio, like I was... I was into mixed martial arts before it was cool. That's why, but, but it was, but that was like, you never saw on TV back then, like actual references to the UFC or, or ultimate fighting or any of that back then. It was very new. Like when we, for Raging Bender, it was very new. Uh, And really it's a show about like 1950s wrestling or like 1950s boxing, Mm -hmm. you know, we just used like, there's this new thing, uh, UFC, so we just we just used the word the name, but like uh, I'm sure I'm sure I knew nothing about UFC. Do we talk about UFC and news radio? If that was almost certainly Joe Rogan would have been into it. I I assumed it was a Joe Rogan pitch, but I was like, oh wait, they did have they they did MMA fighting on an episode of of news radio. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, it wasn't much that Joe Rogan would pitch things; it's just he would he would talk a lot, and we would just take everything he said and just put it in the script. When you were starting on the show, definitely seems like you guys like had big plans for Zap Brannigan, but then season two starts with Brannigan Begin Again, which is like the super Zap episode. Like, when did you guys like fall in love with Zap Brannigan? Oh, like the the second from 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 minute one. <laughs> it's like everyone loved. I really, it's like, yeah. I I think the reason we love Zap Brannigan is we love Kip Croker. And it's sort of like just the interplay between those two voices. So it's like, when did we, like, as great as the Zap Brannigan voice is, when did we fall in love with Zap Brannigan? We heard Kip Croker's, Croker's voice, I think. Like, hmm. um, and just they're such a great comedy team. And it's just great, you know, like, the, there's so much comedy we had from characters with no self-doubt, with misplaced confidence. So sort of that's what Ender is mainly, but, like, this, this is sort of like the, the, the more villainous version. Uh, we, yeah, so we were always going to do lots and lots of, of uh, Zap Brannigan and stuff. That first season, it was tough to bring people back because we were just sort of establishing what the show was. And it was tough to say, well, let's have multiple Zap Brannigan episodes in this first season, which was only like what, eight or nine episodes. Because first of all, like we just needed to develop our the main characters who worked at Planet Express. And like, second of all, what if everyone hates Zap Brannigan or like what if it doesn't really what if what people don't like it as much as we do and like we don't and like we're we're stuck with it you know like we're because like remember like like news radio or, or, or like animation has such a long lead time that you don't get any feedback until really really late and I'm sure that hearing uh Billy West's performance inspired you to write more for the character oh, I, I assume the first yeah. time you heard Billy do the so, voice yeah we yeah. all really liked it and like that uh, and 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 him and Kip is delightful. So we knew it was coming back, but like it's tough. It's tough to it's tough to have secondary characters recur when you have like there were just so many characters who actually worked at Planet Express that we had to serve. So it's tough to give him his second episode before you've done an Amy episode. And uh, earlier this year, we covered Amazon Women in the Mood. And we were, uh, we thought it was very funny, but we were also slightly shocked by how dirty it, it was really for was. a show from 20 years ago that aired on Fox at 7 p.m. Mm. Uh, were there any challenges getting that on the air? And by the way, uh, one of B. Arthur's best performances mm. uh, in her entire career. Well, she was so good because that's like that her big long line 
about being a, a about being a, a woman in a man's world uh, that makes no sense. I mean, like that is an unperformable line. It's really <laughs> long and it's really logically convoluted, and like it it kind of makes no sense. And like like I like I, I was really worried. Like this is an unperformable line. What are we going to do to poor B. Arthur? And like it's not unperformable to B. Arthur. She was uh, just you know she's she's a genius. Um. But uh, I don't, I don't think so. I think like those '90s sitcoms were all really dirty, <laughs> and I think like they're like people were very happy to have have uh, stuff have have a lot of like sexual double entendre language on TV at that point. I don't think that's what standards and practices really cared about. Hmm. It's like like uh, I, I feel like NBC would have liked news radio to be dirtier mm. and like we you know our our sensibility was more like classic tv like like you know green acres beverly hillbillies which wasn't dirty at all you know uh and uh um so so i don't i don't think so i think they were they were fine with this new snoop and uh, in in those you know since hearing that you were like the third guy in the room so early in futurama like how early were you guys figuring out the you know not all sitcoms back then had long arcs or planned to have like oh the, where you've got the secret reveals of like nibbler or leela's parents or whatever and, yeah, and continuity as well yeah and, and tons of continuity wow. like how much were you planning that early on zero oh <laughs> oh zero um yeah, like the reveal of Nibbler and the reveal of, of Leela Parents. Oh, no, we figured out that for that episode and just tried to make it work with what we had already established. Several classic Futurama writers came back for the, the Comedy Central seasons, and uh, yourself included. And I got to say, the late Philip J. Fry is like seriously one of the best Futurama episodes ever. Oh, yeah. thank you. Was, was it easy to get back into the groove with, with all the characters? Well, I, I didn't come back full time. I just wrote a couple, uh, like three, um, uh, freelance scripts, but, uh, no, no, it's like coming home. I mean, the, the concept of time, time travel that only happens forward was so clever and that it just, they had to just go around the horn every time. But, but then on top of that, like it still had like the, the heart that, that makes so many classic Futurama episodes so memorable. Yeah, that, the the idea of a forwards only time machine was Matt Groening's idea, um, and then like, yeah, it's just a matter of having like that the Fry Leela love story um, actually take it seriously enough to mm -hmm. make it play. And how did working on uh, Futurama compare to other animated shows you worked on? I assume uh, obviously fewer PhDs in the room, but what were the other major differences? <laughs> Oh, they're all totally different. I mean, like uh, we did big science fiction stories that we took seriously. We took the emotional, you know, relationships between the characters seriously. Family Guy is really like mainly everything is to serve the cutaways. Uh, before you you went on to Beavis and Butthead, I know you know uh, David Cohen wrote in the original seasons of Beavis and Butthead. Like, were were you watching those back then? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, everyone was. Like, it, this was like I just graduated from college when. Uh, reason when it came out, but yeah, uh, definitely, yeah. Um, uh, Stu Burns too from Futurama got his first job was writing Beavis and Butthead. That's definitely something I've wanted to do on this run of Beavis and Butthead is is give people their first job. Mm. Yeah, we are watching the new series. It's great, by the way. Uh, and we notice uh, returning writers like Sam Johnson and Chris Marcel, and then a lot of newer writers as well, all doing different kinds of episodes that still all feel correct in, in the Beavis and Butthead mold. We we buy a lot of episodes freelance. And uh, that's, what, that's like what they did back then. And that's sort of how we feel like we can give scripts to people with no credits. Oh, well, you know, one, I was, uh, uh Jess Dweck, uh, from, I, I was like, Oh, I know that person from Twitter, like from just funny tweets. And then, mm -hmm. wow. Writing on the news, uh, Beavs and Butter. Yeah. Uh-huh. She wrote some good episodes. Yeah. It, we basically, we've hired like mostly writers without a ton of credits. 
and freelances and uh, and a, a, a smattering of, of uh, heavy hitters from the old days, like uh, Chris Brown and uh, and uh, Chris Marshall and uh, and Sam Johnson. Chris Marshall is actually working full time on the show now. Oh, great! Oh, cool. Yeah, it. We've we've looked at Beavis and Butthead on our other podcast. After revisiting the shows as adults, uh, we have a real appreciation for the writing because there's like a specificity to the characters and how they interact with each other and to uh, how difficult it is to make these dumb characters do anything. Uh, what's what's your philosophy when it comes to uh, what makes these characters work and how you write an episode? Well, the, the thing about Beavis and Butthead is if they get out of character for even one second, the whole thing comes crashing down. And so there's no, you just have to go in that there's no joke funny enough to bring them out of character, mm. um, which is not entirely true in the video segments. When they're watching the videos, you'll notice they're a little smarter just so you can, you can do jokes. They can refer to things, but like in the, in the cartoon segments, they don't know anything and they have a, a, a vocabulary of about a hundred words. <laughs> it's that. And, uh, it's sort of like writing a Beavis Butthead episode is like building like a Lego house, but you only have eight Legos. <laughs> and so like every episode, you only have the same eight Legos. You just have to find a different way to put them together. But uh, it's just keeping it simple. And like, it, uh, it, uh, like the, the, the learning curve of Beavis and Butthead is figuring out how much needs to happen in an episode. And it's, it's not much, but it's something. You need mm -hmm. like a very tiny story and uh it's just a very simple story and then it you it's just like very simple they talk really slow everything happens pretty slowly it's like the slowest animated show like i've ever heard of <laughs> where like like this like most animated shows the dialogue is cut really tight so there's no pauses and like like i remember in futurama editing dialogue and any like the First thing you do is anytime an actor breathes, you cut it, you snip it out, just just close up the space. And uh, no, Beavis and Butthead, we add pauses. We tell the actors to slow down. It's just like it's a very slow, deliberate show. But like, yeah, the philosophy is basically like they, you just you can't bring them out of character to do a joke even for one second. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was I was curious, you know, was Silicon Valley, uh, was that what got you uh, into Mike Judge's orbit, or had you worked with him before? Uh, Silicon Valley. Okay. And and so you guys just kind of clicked, really? He, he knew you'd be good for this job? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, I seem dumb enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at first, I mean, at first it was strange to see, oh, uh, when I saw who was writing the movie, uh, Lou Morton, I recognized your name immediately, but then I thought, well, Futurama writer, but then I went back to the podcast that we did and thought, well, Beef's Butt is, is a difficult show to write, mm. so uh, I'm sure there will be Futurama-style ideas with the the slightly complex but stupid Beef's Butt comedy, and that's what the movie turned out to be entirely. Yeah, the thing about, like, writing a Beavis and Butthead movie is... It's the problem in, in Futurama we have with Fry sometimes that like your main character is too dumb to understand the story that they're in. And like that was a problem we had in like some early Futuramas that like the story doesn't work. We learned the hard way that like the story doesn't work if Fry doesn't understand the stakes of his own story. Mm -hmm. Like you have you Fry had like so we, we sort of quickly learned like Fry has to know, has to understand what's going on enough that he's invested in, in, in the outcome. And like that, like Fry always needs to like, he needs to be actively working towards his goal because he wants, he wants the goal and he has to be smart enough for that to happen, for that to work. But like even better, they can't be smart enough to, to, to achieve their goal or pursue a goal or anything. And so it's like, we, that's why we ended up putting in smart adding smart beavis and butthead chasing them and uh <laughs> the the governor chasing them and, and the cia chasing them just because you need people with uh you need people pursuing goals in a movie and beavis and butthead can't do it so you're officially saying fry is smarter than beavis and or butthead 
that. Oh, he definitely is. Yes, it's on the record now. <laughs> and yeah, you're saying you're saying earlier in the interview that this uh, Beavis and Butthead do the universe started as a special, but evolved into the into the movie that we know now. How did that happen exactly? Well, it we we knew they wanted a special, and there already existed this like far long before I joined the project. This uh, script for a live action Beavis and Butthead movie that was written by Mike and uh, Ian and Guy Maxstone Graham. Uh, and so we just took that script and rewrote it to sort of suit what we felt we needed this movie to do. It seemed like, it seemed like we had enough there to be movie length and it seemed like we could make a movie plot. And so we just like, there was a point like, I took Christmas break two years ago and just sort of like took everything we had talked about and just like, just like, and took the existing script and just, just like wrote a hundred pages in two weeks just to sort of almost to prove that it wouldn't work. <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, this, this, is, this looks like it will work. Uh, um, but there's one thing like, like this, like we, we had to add, I feel like the thing that really made it, work better better than uh made, made the movie work sort of as a movie is uh um adding the beavis emotional story which is really hard to do with those two characters <laughs> who barely have emotions at all like butthead has no emotions at all beavis sort of has the emotions of a two-year-old and uh <laughs> sort of poorly his poorly understood emotions but like we sort of like like I feel like the thing that really made it come together is sort of like this putting big stakes on if Beavis can say I love you to the woman who's trying to kill him kill him. He actually Beavis is seen talking to Siri and really opening up was like <laughs> that was such a kind of beautiful scene to finally see Beavis open up like that. <laughs> this I feel like that that acting on that scene, like the the in animation there's two types of acting. There's the vocal acting and the the, the drawn acting, the animated acting, the, the animated acting on that scene is unbelievably good. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's the one thing. Like it's it's hard. Like all the people who animated it in the '90s, they're they're like they're uh, they're 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 at the the old animators' home, I suppose. They're, 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 <laughs> we, we certainly can't find that many of them. We have we have like uh, uh, Jeffrey Johnson uh, from the old days, and we have Johnny Rice from the old days. We're both great hmm. directors. It- but mostly it's only people, but like the, that's the thing is like finding just like, like in the writing there's, they can't, they don't, they don't have many things they can do and stay within characters and in, in, in acting that they, their acting is unbelievably limited in what they can and can't do. It's like, they can almost not move their arms. <laughs> Um, it's like, and, and like, it's the kind of thing when they do, and it's something that's acting that, that seems out of character, you immediately notice it and it immediately pulls you out. And so it's like, you have these, so it's like, that was like a really genius, uh, bit of storyboarding where they like, he's really expressive in that scene. Beavis is really expressive in that scene without getting out of his incredibly limited visual vocabulary of the poses he can do yeah it seems like uh this could just be the episodes that have aired so far as of this recording but it seems like with the movie and the episodes i don't know if it's intentional but a lot of it does seem to be exploring how beavis is actually a very sweet boy but uh <laughs> life keeps setting him down the wrong paths yeah yeah um uh there's uh, there's more there's more head coming uh oh good, we're, good. We're definitely leading with leading with 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 the Beavis episodes sort of fall early in the schedule. But uh, yeah, that's something I always like in comedy. And we did a lot on Veep that like your characters could be happy and the choice of happiness is right in front of them. <laughs> uh, and like they could easily take it, but their, their character flaws prevent them and, and consign them to miserableness. Um, we were kind of like everyone on Veep had the story that like, if they just quit, there's this thing right here that could make them happy if they just quit politics and did that. <laughs> I, I just can't. I'm like a, a sort of that with 
Steve Islip. Yeah, so far there have been two episodes that felt experimental but still fit within uh, the constraints of the formula. Uh, the one with Beavis talking to the fire and the one that just aired last week with uh, Beavis and the uh, the annoying new friend. Uh, it, right. it feels like it's, it was interesting to see Beavis kind of on his own without the butthead dynamic, but it still really worked well. Beavis is a good character to put with other people. He, he wants things, but he's, he's totally helpless. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I was pretty excited getting started to do episodes that break the format a little bit. And like, uh, I, I felt like the trapped in a box breaks format a little bit from that. Mm -hmm. Like, so much of it is their their trap; they don't move, which is sort of a weird thing to animation. And we have one in season two where they're like they fall in the sewer, and the point where the lights are out, and we play like like at least a solid minute on a black screen. <laughs> <laughs> And it's sort of like, we're sort of figuring out, like, what do we have to do to let people know their TVs aren't broken? <laughs> like, we're, like, we're still figuring out, like, do we need to see, like, one little bit of light up in the corner so you know your TV didn't shut off? People uh, are going to be canceling their Paramount Plus subscriptions thinking that it's, yeah. it's broken. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I love that Beavis, in those, in those two episodes, Bob mentioned that he's kind of, if he's not with Butthead, he's just like wandering around town looking for Butthead, and it's just like yeah. so so sad. They're they're really codependent. Mm -hmm. Oh, and and also in the fire episode, I love too that you take this concept that was like one of the most controversial things in their first series of Beavis and Butthead about Beavis's love of fire, and then you turn that into the healthiest relationship he's ever had. Uh, which he rejects. Yeah, turns out they should have really leaned into fire back then. The fire, that's that's why they're so bad. They didn't have a fire. In <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny, like, what is and isn't taboo in the 90s and now, whereas now it's just like, you ask uh, Paramount Plus, and, like, really, our, our the executives are uh, our, our Comedy Central executives. Uh, and, like, uh, like, like we're going to, we're really going to lean into Beavis Loves Fire. And they're like, great. <laughs> <laughs> there are much more dangerous things now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and working with Mike Judge, uh, was it easy for him to just slip back into these voices? Because every time, I mean, Beavis and Butt has come back twice now. And every time I'm just so surprised that the voices uh, sound identical to me. Uh, and he's just such a skilled voice actor, too, on top of that. Is is he yeah. pitching things in the voices? Is he, uh, like, it feels like he must have editorial control if he is the conduit through which all writing must flow, pretty oh, of much. Course. Yeah, 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 of course he does. Yeah, he's, he's uh, super involved in the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, he's Beavis and Butthead. I... It seems really effortless for him to keep doing the voices, but I'm not doing them. I, it, I like. Uh, I think like Beavis is harder to do than it was when he was 30, just because it's so raspy. I think it's just physically harder. Uh, but uh, he sure does it. It sounds great to me, and he's like such a great performer. I mean, without his performance, there's no like, there's no way any of it is funny. Um, <laughs> None yeah. of it seems like it would be funny on the page. Well, yeah, and he has to scream. Well, speaking of being raspy, like Beavis has to scream a lot in the show too. Yeah. Like, so many horrible things yeah. happen. Uh, so he's got to scream quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. We limit how often he has to actually scream. That's good for the safety <laughs> of Mike Judge. Or like, because like, you. It's a good thing to do with voice actors in general. Is like you, you save all the screaming for the end, and like you try to limit. How many times you ask them to scream? Like you don't, you don't do, you don't do eight, you don't do eight takes of the scream. Oh well, so in in do the do the universe too. You guys made you know this big move to have uh, the characters you know teleported to twenty twenty two. Not not that they really notice at first, but they like so so uh, you know how how important was for you to have you know these ideas of Beavis and Butthead interact with modern day. Um, we like the idea of Beavis and Butt interacting with modern day and it's sort of a lot of like me and Mike talking about like, do we have enough mo modern day? Is that like, should we have more modern day in the, in the new episode? And it's like, well, I guess escape room was a sort of modern day. So like, maybe that's like, 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 uh, I guess that's good. But like, really like, 
that's not what Beavis and Butthead is here to do. Uh, like to comment on modern day. It's just like, we're just being as funny as we can. Hmm. And the fact that it's set in today means we're going to end up, uh, you know, like, like we're going to end up, uh, commenting on things that ha- that are happening today because it just, it just Beavis and Butthead takes place in the world. But like, being satirical is not like what Mike and I wake up in the morning excited to do. It's like, we're just trying to make the show as funny as we can. And the show is like, at its heart, it's like the show is, the show is basically like, it's, it's closer to Three Stooges than any modern hmm. show. And that it's uh, sort of uh, two incredibly dumb guys <laughs> run into these secondary characters the secondary characters give them the benefit of the doubt and it's a big mistake. It's like that, that's sort of like... Well, as we wrap up here, Alu, I wanted to know, uh, you know, as a Futurama writer, you, you're used to having an audience full of pedantic nerds who love continuity. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it seems to me the movie ending does not really mesh with the the series reboot. I was completely fine with it. I thought, oh, is is Van Treeson aged up? But as soon as I saw Mr. Anderson was still alive as the world's oldest World War II vet, I was like, okay, that's fine. I just like that the characters are back. Uh, mm-hmm. What was your idea about uh, like if there would be continuity between the movie and the show? Like, were you thinking about that at all? Well, at, at one point, um, we definitely were. It was going to be continuity. We were never going to talk about what happened in the movie in the show because, like, that's not the kind of show. Beavis and Butthead is with continuing stories and stuff. And it just felt like you shouldn't be required to watch the movie to understand a Beavis and Butthead episode. But like we did age up Van Driesen and Mr. Anderson um, a lot at first. And then we just scaled it back and scaled it back and scaled it back. But like Van Driesen is, is aged up. Sort of, if you look, if you looked at the like his model now and his his '90s model right like next to each other, you would notice. But like, if it's not right next to each other, you might not notice. <laughs> but like, there's the idea that like like well, Van Driesen will be in his he's a he'll be in his fifties, and like, um, Mr. Anderson is supposed to be super old now. But like, we he does need a hearing aid that he didn't need before. Uh, yeah. But like. <laughs> And like you'll notice, like you haven't seen Stewart and Stewart and Todd. Yeah, like right. we're, we're like yeah, Stewart and Todd did get older. Uh, and at some point, we were gonna have like old fat Todd. And like at some point, old fat Todd was in the movie, um, mm. uh, and just just got cut. But uh, the thing with like we sort of learned and leaned into is that we're not we're not that interested in continuity hmm. and like uh the we're very happy for the episodes to be self-contained there's i defy anyone to have them to say what order they had that like they, that if they happen in any sort of order <laughs> like nothing nothing in episode two will have informed anything that's going to happen in episode 20 uh, they don't, so they certainly don't learn things or grow and we, we kill them at the end of a lot of episodes like that, that killing them at the end of every episode is, is, is anti-continuity, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, yeah. Well, actually the, the, the continuity bit too in the movie, another of my favorite jokes is you guys tease answering like who's Beavis's mom like what's her deal and oh, you yeah, 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 will yeah. not give it to us you you have no no <laughs> like i i was petrified like she does she was saying something un- underneath the, the the garbage disposal just so we could uh just so it would sound like there's something you couldn't hear just like mm-hmm. the faint the faint noise of something you couldn't hear and like i was petrified that 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 what she was saying would somehow end up on the closed caption <laughs> like well, we don't know we don't you're not allowed to know anything about their parents uh that's something this is something mike said a lot of times a lot of times but like the reason you never see their parents is basically it's 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 uh it's inspired by uh by charlie brown hmm. where you never see their parents and it's just we're seeing the show is from their point of view and from their point of view their parents are completely unimportant 
So their parents kind of aren't an important part of their lives. Their lives are, are what you see, you know, that that's, what's important to them. And so it's just, you just like, it's not, we just don't show it. They have like, they have parents. It's sort of unclear now if they have parents because like we still refer to their parents, even though we're in some ways, 25 years, <laughs> they want 25 years in the future. But again, we kind of have come around to that. We don't care about continuity at all. Well, I thought the movie was very funny, but I also walked away thinking, I'm glad I know it's Beavis's house now. Yes, we do know that now. Yeah. It's a fact. <laughs> I try, yeah, I try not, like Mike, Mike said, no, I always thought it was Beavis's house. Like, well, there you go. go. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's... <laughs> it's apparently established somewhere in some book or something that it's Butthead's house. But um... Well, you know, there's book continuity and then there's what happens in the show. Like, that's an extra level right. of continuity. We don't have a canon. <laughs> the Catholic Church has a canon. We don't, we don't have a canon. Uh, and later we, we do, at, we're, we're coming, we're doing episodes where they're older, mm. where we sort of explain, we have, and we bring Smart Beavis and Butthead back to sort of explain why they're older in this episode. Oh, great. <laughs> I love those Beavis guys. And, come and basically say like, we're much smarter than you. We spend our time and what do we do? Cause we're so smart. We spend our time watching the most interesting universe in, in the whole multiverse, which is the one where Beavis and Butthead are old. <laughs> so here's, here's, here's something we observed once. You won't understand it because it's too complicated, but do your best. And then it's, it's an episode with, with Smart Beavis. Oh, with, man, with I can't Beavis. wait. Well, we should wrap up soon yes, with you, Lou. Yeah. We appreciate your time. Uh, great answers. I love learning more about your career. Uh, Futurama, Beavis and Butthead, News Radio, all the great stuff. Anything else you want to tease about anything you're working on? Uh, anything you want to tease about anything coming up on Beavis and Butthead this season? Uh, we've got a lot coming. We've got uh, Beavis and Butthead are old. Uh, uh, Stuart, Beavis and Butthead, who are, when they're old, uh, run into old Stuart. That's coming. Uh, they die at the end of a lot more episodes. Oh, that's great. Uh, and at the very end, we have an entire episode of Smart Beavis and Butthead. Excellent. Oh, hell yeah. I was going to ask him. Beavis can... and Butthead go to Earth and abduct Mr. Anderson. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. I was going to ask, can we confirm uh, Cornholio, or is this still a secret? Yes. Yes. Okay. There are Cornholio in the 24 episodes and 48 scripts we're doing, uh, I believe. Believe I can promise you two cornholios. Excellent, it's and, on the record now. Yeah. And <laughs> breaking news: <laughs> when you're digging deep into, like, there's only so many music videos that exist now. So you guys are digging deep into the the social media as well for great videos too. Right. Uh, yeah, those that turned out to be pretty uh, pretty fruitful. Uh, doing the social media stuff, doing doing YouTube's and TikToks. Uh, it's it was really, really hard getting any videos to clear mm. uh, at first because you you need, uh, like, the people who make a lot of YouTube videos, it turns out these days, don't care about being on TV at all. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, are you paying me a huge amount of money? No? Well, then get lost. Uh, but now that people see what it's like to be on Beavis and Butthead, uh, I'm, I'm thinking it'll be easier to clear because it maybe it'll look like fun to be made fun of by Beavis and Butthead. And like, we're still doing the music videos, uh, which I think we were a little afraid at first, like if we do music videos, will it seem like we're trapped in the past because there are no music videos anymore. People don't watch music videos, but it kind of, we've kind of convinced ourselves at least that people do watch music videos still yeah. and like popular music videos are like on youtube get like a billion views so uh yeah i'd say um, music videos feel more yeah. alive now than they did for the 2011 reboot i think yeah yeah, yeah that's it it feels like they're like a little bit there's not like it was when in the glory days of mtv when you're sitting down and watching music videos would be like your afternoon every afternoon but uh it it definitely feels like it's it's like it, it doesn't feel like we made them up. You know, I feel like it's a real thing. And like we did the BTS one. And it, it, like it, 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 it does. I feel like it does feel irrelevant doing the music videos in a way we were afraid maybe it wouldn't. So mm -hmm. we're going to mm -hmm. keep doing it. 
Well, man, we can't wait to see the rest of the season, Lou. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for your time, Lou. Uh, and the new season is amazing. If you haven't seen it, uh, listeners at home, check it out on Paramount+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, use code word nachos for three months. Ooh. Ooh boy. <laughs> your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.